Good morning, church. It's so good to see uh, so many of you here this morning. Um, I know that you guys are kind of squeezed in, and there's even some of you, I think, in the overflow room. So we love you, those of you who are there. You're with us, even though you're not with us. Um, We are starting this morning um, a new sermon series that we'll be looking at um, being in for the next seven weeks or so. And let me just tell you a story uh, to help you understand why we're doing this together. Um, I think I told you a couple weeks ago that my family and I went up to New England in August for a family vacation. And one of the places that we visited was Maine. Um, We really just have always wanted to go to Maine, and it was everything we hoped it would be, lobsters, lighthouses, you know, all the rest. And one of the most memorable things, however, for me, was something that you might not expect. We went to Acadia National Park, uh, one of the most beautiful national parks in the country. And um, it's known for Cadillac Mountain, which is a mountain right in the center of the park. It's the highest peak in in the park. And on top of Cadillac Mountain, you get this amazing panoramic view of the ocean on all sides. It's just glorious. And so it was a perfect day, perfect blue sky, perfect temperature. We got up to the top of the mountain. It was just glorious. The sea was sparkling. But right there, right in front of me, sitting on top of a boulder, were three young men, backs to each other, staring at their phones. And I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was sad. I thought it was just remarkable. In fact, I thought it was so interesting. I started taking pictures of them, um, much to the embarrassment of my family. I just thought it'd be a great sermon illustration one day, right? And here we are. Uh, But what actually, I'll tell you what I thought of when I saw it. Um, I thought of um, the philosopher Noam Chomsky. Um, if you know, if you study philosophy at all, you've probably heard of Noam Chomsky. He's a, he's a uh, contemporary philosopher uh, at Notre Dame. And what he said was, at one point, he famously said that the paradigmatic image of modern life is a guy sitting in a room by himself staring at a screen. That is the image of modern Western life. So when I saw those kids, I thought, if only Noam Chomsky could see this, <laughs> way better. Because, and what Noam Chomsky was saying, and bear with me a little bit here, okay? I'm gonna get a little bit heady for a moment. But Noam Chomsky was critiquing what he saw as two dominant forces that are shaping our reality every day. And those two forces are these. First, it's individualism. Individualism is a dominating force in the Western worldview. It sees each person as an individual and puts the needs and the demands of the individual above all other things. It is the supremacy of the self, the self above community, the self above commitments, the supremacy of the self. That's individualism. The other force, he said, that is dominantly shaping us is consumerism, that we think of ourselves primarily as consumers. And everything, and everything these days has become a marketable good, from housewives to handymen, from pregnancy to porn. You know, everything is marketable, everything entertains. And we increasingly see ourselves as consumers and our worlds are shrinking to the size of our insatiable appetites. And so I saw in that image these two dominant things coming together right in this picture of these young men. And I wanted to just run up to these dudes and say, guys, listen, put down your phone. Don't you see the way that you have been held captive to individualism, consumerism? And will you, will you look at each other? Will you develop these friendships? Will you look at this view? See that God is calling you to be a participant, a contributor to the world. But of course I didn't. Because that would have really embarrassed my family. And the other fact is, is that I know I am captive to these things too. 
It's not just those guys. It's all of us. All of us are captive to these things. We are more lonely, more fragmented, more isolated than we have ever been. Uh, our, our desires, we, we find ourselves increasingly passive even as we are decreasingly satisfied with the lives that we're actually living. Turns out that next new piece of tech and getting the right countertops does not actually deliver the fulfillment that you crave. And many of you know these things. You have these deep longing for connection, this desire for purpose, a craving for relationships of depth. And what I want you to hear today is that God is inviting you into something better. He's inviting you through Jesus Christ out of isolation, out of individualism, and into community, into relationship. And not only that, he's inviting you out of restless directionlessness in which the purpose of your life is only shaped by your appetites, and he is calling you into a life of cosmic meaning in which you can actually participate in God's renewal of all things. Through Jesus Christ, by grace, you are being called out of yourself into community, into purpose, into life. God's put out a welcome sign. And that welcome sign is on, of all things, the door of the church. Because it is through Jesus, but it is ultimately through the church that Jesus has offering these things to the world, community and mission. And this is why, for the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at seven metaphors of the church, the church of Jesus Christ, and this community of mission and purpose and relationships that Jesus wants his church to be. So we're going to be looking at everything from household to temple, from salt to light, from flock to field, from body to bride. And in every one of these metaphors you will see this invitation of Jesus into community and invitation into mission. Now, I know some of you are saying, that is not what I think about the church. <laughs> for some of you, your experience this church has been marked by exclusion, by hypocrisy, and for some of you, boredom. As I know some of you little ones are thinking. <laughs> but friends, that is not what the church has to be, and that is not what Jesus desires the church to be. He desires something better. And that's what we're going to pursue together this fall. So let's turn to our text in Ephesians. And we're going to look at one metaphor today, and that is the metaphor of the household. Now, Paul was brilliant, but one thing he was not was focused. Um, he, he in, this, in this single text, piles up multiple metaphors, mixing them with one another. So what we're going to do is just pull one of those metaphors out, the household, and look at what this text and others like it say about it today. So let's pray as we go to God's Word. Father, we do pray that you would help us to capture a vision of your church that is offering a welcome to every person out of isolation, out of individualism, out of meaninglessness and restlessness, and into community and mission. Help us to hear that, that welcome from you today. And we pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we might not just hear your word, but respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, that is through Christ, we all have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. There it is. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Family of God, this is the word of the Lord. I want to just look at three simple things about this metaphor with you today. First of all, what does this mean? What is the household? Let's look at that together, the meaning of it. Secondly, what is it like? What are the characteristics, the qualities of the household? And finally, the practice. How do we actually do it? Okay, so first, let's look at what it actually is. To understand this, we have to dig into a little bit of the, of the culture of the ancient context in which this was written, because family life, honestly, was very, very different then than it is today. The word that Paul uses here in verse 19 for household is, believe it or not, a Greek word that you already know. And you know what it is? Oikos. <laughs> That's what it is. Oikos is the Greek word for fruity yogurt. <laughs> Actually, it's not. I have no idea why Danon decided to call their yogurt oikos. It's very strange. I even looked at their website for why they did. They no explanation. It just sounded good. Okay, so oikos is not fruity yogurt. Oikos actually means household, or another way to translate it would be extended family. In the ancient world, family life was very, very different. You never saw just like a mom and dad living together alone with their kids, or a mom with their kids, or singles living together. You never saw that. Instead, what you saw is people living together in households. That was the most essential social structure of the ancient world. And oikos was basically a large extended family, which included a whole lot of people, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, relatives, even friends, business associates, because people were often working together, neighbors, all of these people together constituted what was called an oikos, which was an extended family living in a common place, a common estate or a common home. The closest thing that I can think of that would translate into modern parlance would be if you've seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Have you seen that? So you know how like Mia and, and her fiance, like they can't get away from this huge crowd of people that are with them all the time? That's an oikos. Um, and that is the way that much of the ancient world lived and much of the way that the non-Western world lives today. In the ancient world, because life was so dangerous, literally just living was dangerous, to be in an oikos was actually necessary for a safe and stable life. So, um, for, so for example, the, it was a place where uh, protection for the vulnerable was offered and inclusion for the outsider and the refugee, support for the aged and the sick. There were no such thing as nursing homes back then. There were oikos. To be in an oikos was to have an identity, to have a, a place of refuge, protection. It was a place of belonging. It was home. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking this image of oikos, and he's using it as a metaphor for the church. He's saying that now God has created this new oikos through the gospel, and guess what? You're invited. He says in verse 19, look, look, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Now, what is he talking about? The people he's writing to here were not foreigners. They were living in their own land. What, is, what he means, of course, is that they were spiritual foreigners, spiritual orphans, aliens, wanderers. He's saying before you know Jesus, every one of us is a wanderer, an orphan, looking for a place of belonging, looking for a home. It's what um, 20th century existentialist Martin Heidegger called umheimlichkeit. I'm not sneezing. That's a word, umheimlichkeit. It means um, 
it's hard to, it means like alienation, homelessness. Heidegger was not a Christian, but he was saying that this is the common experience of humanity, that we are strangers in our own land, exiles in our own families, orphans longing for home. And this is why I think that even a society as individualistic as our own loves stories about people finding a place, people finding a home, right? When I was growing up, my parents watched Cheers. You remember that show where everybody knows your name? Um, when I was a young adult in the 90s, me and my friends, we watched this show called Friends, uh, which was a show about you know, six, six, individual, six young adults with really messed up families who were making a new family together. That's an oikos. Um, nowadays, people watch a show called Modern Family, which is a show about these eclectic people, these eclectic families who are sort of loosely connected, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to live in an extended relationship with each other. That's oikos. You see, we long for this. Do you see that? We long for this family protection, identity, belonging. And the good news, the bad news is, is that no home you will ever find in this creation will give you that satisfaction and belonging and safety. The good news is that God is the good father who has opened up his oikos to you. It says in verse 18, for through Christ, we both, that's Jew and Gentile, everybody, has access to the father by one spirit. You are a wandering vagabond, and you look up, and there's a big front porch, and right up there on that porch is the Holy Trinity, the welcome committee. The Father loves you. The Son has died, given up his place as the Son, dying for you on the cross to give you his status as a sibling in his household. And the Spirit beckons you and calls you in. Jesus said in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. In my Father's oikos are many rooms. And there's a room with your name on it. You are welcome. Friends, if you're not a Christian or or you're not sure you're a Christian, let me make it plain to you. To be a Christian simply means this, to accept the welcome of the Father by grace into his forever family. That's what it means. Have you received that invitation? Have you, have you accepted his invitation? That you are no longer, you don't have to be an orphan. You don't have to wonder who you are. You don't have to wonder, do I have a place of security? You are welcomed into the Father's house with Jesus as your big brother and with the Spirit helping you know that you are loved. So that's what, that's what Paul is doing when he uses this, this, frame, this metaphor of the oikos. The church is an extended family opened wide by the grace of Jesus Christ, okay? What about the qualities of this household? What is it like? What is it actually like to be a part of the household? Because you know, for for Paul, this wasn't just a metaphor. This was actually something to actually live out in in this community called the church. So let me just mention a few qualities of what it would mean to live in the household, especially in the New Testament community. And what it might be like for us today. What are some characteristics that should define the church when we operate as an oikos? Well, the first is what I'll call non-selectivity, okay? There are, let me tell you what I mean by this. There's lots of different relationships in your life that you choose, that you select. I'm thinking specifically of friendships and romantic relationships, right? You, at least thankfully in, in the Western world, we choose those people. We select them usually because of some nobility or quality or common interest. But family love is different, isn't it? Family love, you somehow end up with people that you wouldn't necessarily choose. Um, In in his book, um, The Four Loves, 
Um, C.S. Lewis calls this storge love. Um, and storge love is the kind of love that he says exists between people who would have otherwise had nothing to do with each other, but now they find themselves bonded together through common blood. You've all had this experience. You're sitting around the Thanksgiving table. You're looking at these people. You're thinking, who are these people? How am I related to them? Right? I know some of you are thinking about that about your brothers and sisters. Like, who are these people? And, but, but yet you love them, not because you have common interest to them. I mean, they're honestly kind of weird, right? Why do you love them? Because of storge, because of common blood. And what Paul is saying is that when the church functions as a household, there is a non-selectivity to your relationships. You find yourself in a new family with new brothers and sisters that, that you would have never chosen to be in a family with, but Jesus, the host, has welcomed them in along with you by grace. Just before this passage, he talks about how Jesus has torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and now people who were sworn enemies suddenly find themselves bonded together in the same family in Christ. What is that? That's storge. And one of the real marks, if the gospel is taking root in your life, you will find that you are increasingly in relationship with people for whom there is no way to explain your relationship with them except through Jesus Christ. Let me just give you, just give you an illustration of this. Let's just say, there, just imagine a guy, okay? Imagine a guy, he's, uh, he's a lawyer, um, he's uh, a dad, he's of Scottish origin, he's a Democrat, and he vaguely thinks about himself as a Christian because he was baptized as a kid, but he like goes to church on Christmas maybe, like he's, it's not really important to him, okay? So if we were to map out kind of how this guy thinks about his identity, we might say this. Like at the deepest level, he thinks of himself as a lawyer and then a father and then a, a Democrat and his cultural origin. And, and then, you know, being a Christian is somehow in there, but it's not central to his identity. And because his vocation and his family and his political beliefs are so central to the way that he thinks about himself, it's actually very, very difficult for him to have relationships with people who don't share those things with him because they are so core to the way that he thinks about himself. Do you understand what I'm saying? And let me just say this. One of the reasons why I think that our, our, our country has become so deeply politically divided is because people think of po- their political views almost as a part of their most basic core identity. And when that is at the basic of your core identity, no wonder you have such a hard time being in relationship with people who think differently, right? So, but let's say something happens to this guy. Do you know what happens? He meets Jesus. I mean, he really meets Jesus. He is thoroughly converted, He becomes a Christian, and as a result, suddenly being a Christian goes from the top to the bottom. Jesus is now the foundation of his identity, and that becomes the most important part of his life. And he still might be some of those other things, or even some of those things might begin to change, but they no longer have the priority that they once had, and he finds himself suddenly able to be in relationship with other Christians that he would never would have wanted associated with before. People of different cultures, people of different classes, maybe even Republicans. Like he actually finds himself brothers and sisters in a common bond now because of Jesus. True Jesus-centered community must be marked by a lack of pretension, a lack of snobbishness, prejudice of people who are different personalities or cultures or classes. Because why? You don't choose your family, Jesus chooses it for you non-selective relationships. Has that happened to you? Do you find yourself growing in deep relationship with people that you would have never otherwise not chosen to be with were it not for Jesus? Has that happened to you? 
Another quality that we see here is transparency. I love what um, this pagan wrote in second century observing the Christian community. He wrote, their founder Jesus persuades them that they should be like brothers or siblings to one another, and therefore they despise their own privacy. I'll tell you why I think that's funny. And view all their possessions as common property. I think that line is so hilarious, despise their own privacy, because I just feel like that's my life. You know, like, this is what it's like to live in a big family. You know, I've tried to find a place to read, and I can't even find one. I have to go read in the basement bathroom, right? Because this is, this is what it's like. And even there, you hear people shouting your name and wanting stuff, right? So this is what it's like to be in a big family. There is transparency. There is exposure. Um, and when you look at how the New Testament church functions, they really do function as a family. They don't just attend a once-a-week meeting. They actually are doing life together, and they have a claim on one another in the way that they live their daily life. Their lives are exposed, transparent to one another. This is one of the big reasons why the church is not a club, and is completely different than a club. A club, you come together occasionally around a common interest. So let's say you're in a bird-watching club. I actually like bird-watching, so I might join a bird-watching club. Don't make fun. Um, so say, say you're in a bird-watching club, and you go to your bird-watching club, and you're, why are you at the bird-watching club? to talk about and watch birds. And if somebody comes up to you in the birdwatching club and says, hey, can I talk to you about this person you're dating? Because I really don't think they're right for you. What would you say? Excuse me, that's none of your business. I'm here for the birds, thank you, right? Like, you don't do that in a birdwatching club. You know, you keep it about birds. Not in your family, though. When it comes to your family, your mom and your sis and your, and your granny Sue, they're all up in your face about who you're dating, right? And it's not just who you're dating. It's how you spend your money. It's your career. It's the direction of your life, right? Because that's what family do. We're open to each other. We're transparent to one another and even, dare we say, accountable to each other. And this is what Paul's saying about the church, that we're so close to each other that we actually can see into each other's lives And we're doing life together close enough that we actually have a claim on one another. And that leads to the third point. We have responsibility for each other. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, Timothy, he's a young man. He says, treat an older man as if you were your father. Treat treat, uh, younger men as your brothers. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. And And he goes on to say that in the church, we take responsibility for each other's welfare, care, and spiritual development. Now, this can be scary. It's like when you're single and you get married and you suddenly find that you can't just go wherever you want to go and do whatever you want to do. You suddenly are in an accountable relationship. It's the same in becoming a part of the family of the church. And that's scary, but it's also beautiful because you are known, you are loved, and someone is taking care of you and for your own spiritual development and care. This is why in the early church, widows and single people and the poor and orphans and widows always flourished because they didn't need a husband. They didn't need children. They didn't need net worth to be safe and secure because they were taken responsibility for by the body, okay? So that's just a few qualities of the household that might happen if the church started functioning more like a spiritual family. One last thing. How do we do this? It should be apparent to you by now that this kind of deep, intimate, non-selective, transparent community in which we are taking responsibility for each other is quite rare in the American modern church. Remember where we started today, individualism, consumerism? Well, guess what, friends? The church has been infected by these things as well. 
In fact, over the years, the church in many ways has lost the vision of what it means to be spiritual family and has increasingly been shaped by these two powerful worldviews instead. Consumerism has turned us into passive spectators looking to be entertained in church. Individualism has turned us into autonomous nomads seeking out ways to get our spiritual fixes. The church has become a place where experts, like me, put on exciting events to meet individual personal needs. And I want to tell you, I feel the pressure of this as an American pastor. I mean, all the time I'm getting like emails and, and junk mail and stuff saying, make your church the awesomest church, right? Like, how can I make, what, what next new amazing thing can we do? How can we make our worship services epic? How can we have the most incredible website? You know, how can we make our children's, serve, children's ministry unforgettable, right? It's like these, these kinds of hyperbolic words. It's constant. I have never heard a church leader say, this is going to be pretty average. (laughs) This is not going to be exciting. It's actually going to be really difficult, but you'll get to build your character and die to yourself. (laughs) I've never heard anybody say that. Nobody says that. Why? Because there's constant pressure to entertain and titillate and meet individual needs. And I'm telling you, friends, the church needs renewal. The American church needs renewal. Our church needs renewal. We all do. We're all complicit in this, right? And this is, I tell you what, friends, this is the kind of the church that the world needs. The world, how much is our city helped and our communities flourishing and our neighbors loved by us having awesome internal programming? The early church managed to transform the ancient world in about 130 years, and they did it with no buildings, no worship bands, no professional pastors, no core values, no logos, and no vision statements. How in the world did they do it? I'll tell you how. The oikos. Communities of spirit-filled Jesus followers loving their neighbors. Sounds like a strategy. So that's why, friends, we are seeking to make a change here at 3rd. That's why we're on a journey together to begin leaning into a new model of church. We're, we're taking baby steps. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to do what's called a, a parish model of church, one that we've been talking about for months. We'll continue to talk about it. Um, it's difficult for a church of, you know, over 1,200 people to function as a spiritual family. And I know that some of you have felt this way. I know some of you have felt isolated, alone, like you've been ignored, like no one is taking responsibility for you. I know that because you tell me. And I hear you. I want you to know I hear you. And so what we're doing is we're dividing the congregation up into 12 geographic parish areas, about 100 people each, cared for by spiritual shepherds, by, by um, shepherds and deacon, shepherding elders and deacons. And these parish areas will provide gateways for people to connect into third, find a mentor or group, get practical spiritual support. And within each of these parish areas, there are parish groups, which are, guess what? Oikos. Households. Groups of about 15 to 25 men and women, boys and girls, old and young, put together, guess what, non-selectively, just because they happen to live in a common place and they are now seeking to build a spiritual family and love their neighbors for the sake of the gospel. We've been piloting this for about a year. We'll launch it in January for the whole church. And we need your prayers. We need your enthusiasm. Uh, We need leaders. We need participants. If you're interested, even in just learning about it, we're having a training in October Contact Beth Nichols. All the information is on the website. But even before then, right, you can work on this. I think it's evident to all of us that it's not actually possible to experience the kind of intimacy of spiritual family by coming to a big meeting once a week. You know what I'm talking about? 
And we're not going to do away with the Sunday service. This is really important. This is central to what we do, the worship of Jesus Christ, the sacraments, the preaching of the Word of God. We're not getting rid of this. This is central. But what, it's, not, it's necessary but not sufficient. How are you going to deepen what relationships you already have? How might your relationships become more transparent? How might you take greater responsibility for those in your lives that Jesus has entrusted to your care? How might you develop a surprising relationship with someone with whom you only have in common one thing, Jesus? Maybe someone in the Christian Arabic church, maybe someone here today that you met that you think is a little odd, you know, but you, but you, you want to take a step towards them in love. And guess what? That other person's thinking that about you, okay? Um, so how can we deepen the community that we already have and lean into this vision that Jesus has for his church? That's what we'll be exploring in the coming months. So friends, the word this morning is welcome. The whole Trinity is saying this. The Father loves you. Do you hear him? Do you hear him saying that, that he loves you? Jesus, your big brother, is calling you. He gave up his place as the firstborn son of God, dying on the cross for you to give you a place. Do you hear him? He's calling you. The Holy Spirit of God is drawing you through his quiet voice. He's drawing you. Do you hear him? The whole Trinity is beckoning you. Come on in. Come as you are. Come as you are. So welcome. Welcome kids in the mountain looking at your phones. Welcome guy in the golf course numbing your pain. Welcome refugee trying to find a new way. Welcome single mom trying to survive. Welcome students struggling for direction. Welcome suburban family struggling for meaning. Welcome. Welcome into community. Welcome into relationship. Welcome into mission. Welcome into life. That's what Jesus is saying to us, and that's what he's calling us to say to the world. Can we do that together? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for what a gracious and good God you are to us, that you throw open the doors of your welcome through the work of Jesus on the cross for us. And now you draw men and women, boys and girls from every nation by the Spirit into your household. We pray that if there are some here today that have never made that step of receiving your welcome, that they would do so today, just, just responding simply to you. Father, I accept your welcome and know that Jesus died and rose to give me a place in your family. That's all it takes. And I pray for the rest of us that we would really seek to take this metaphor of spiritual family seriously, that we would just look at the people in our lives that we know, that we would deepen our relationships, make them more transparent, um, take responsibility for each other, develop surprising, non-selective relationships. Help us to do that in the name of Christ, because we know that it is by our love that the world will know that Jesus is the Son of God. We pray this in his name. Amen.